0: Welcome to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is Episode 37 with Ben Golub, CEO of Storage. That's spelled S-T-O-R-J. I was really excited to schedule this episode because for a few years, I've been wondering if there's some crypto coin business model that might work in the open source world. This is the second of three episodes that we recorded at the Open Core Summit in San Francisco in 2019. It was a fantastic event for open-source teams and founders, and I highly recommend attending the next one. Ben was previously the CEO of Docker. He was also the founder of Gluster, which was sold to Red Hat. He has a pretty deep understanding of the trials and tribulations of building a business around open-source. After finishing the interview, I wasn't 100% sure this was really an open-source business model after all, but Storage is definitely one of the most unique companies I've ever learned about. So with that said, let's roll the proverbial tape. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Ben, before Storage, you helped found a company that launched a little product called Docker. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? How did Storage come about, and why did you move on from Docker?
1: Oh, great, yeah. I've uh, now been at uh, eight startups for a CEO, so I'm a glutton for punishment. I actually started my career doing uh, international development, so my first failed startup was a business school in Uzbekistan that had a business model which was, I think, you know, teach people how to read a balance sheet and then democracy will flourish, and that didn't quite work. But uh, from then on, I've uh, been involved sort of in, in sort of the first version of the web, ran a number of businesses at Verisign, uh, was CEO of Plaxo, then CEO of Gluster, which we sold to Red Hat, and then ended up at... Uh, what was Dot Cloud, and eventually became Docker. Uh, right at the time that Docker had this crazy notion of taking a container that we used to run a PaaS and said, "Hey, can we make this available to the world?" And uh, you know, Solomon Hikes, the founder, and I introduced this notion of a container, and I think, in sort of sort of excellent open source fashion, embraced the community, embraced uh, something that was disruptive, and you know, we saw it, it grow and it became tremendous and I think helped change the industry and became a thriving business. Um, you know, I'm I'm an early stage startup guy. I'm not a late stage startup guy. And I think that when you, once you get to a certain size where it's, you know, 500, 600 people and, you know, you're closing in on 100 million of revenue, there are people who are better at, at scaling past that than I am. So I moved on, still obviously love the company, and then got approached by Sean Wilkinson, who... Had this crazy notion as a student at Morehouse College that you could build Airbnb for disk drives. And that's what I'm doing now.
0: So I think of storage as decentralized S3.
1: That's absolutely accurate. Deliver something that's like S3, it's cloud storage, but it's delivered across a huge network of disk drives that we don't own, that are run by individuals and and data centers.
0: So for every dollar raised, 60% goes to the person with the hard drive. The other 40 cents, I guess, goes to storage, the company. How do you use that 40 cents to help build the ecosystem?
1: A really good question. Uh, one of the most important things that we do is we not only sort of, you know, we built a really large, equivalent to a really large set of storage data centers without spending any capital. And so we just compensate the people who run the nodes. We want to do the same thing on the demand side as well. So rather than hiring hundreds of salespeople and giving away open source software for free, we've, we've come up with a notion that open source drives two thirds of the cloud. So we Give a portion of our 40 cents to any open source software company that can send users our way. We also have partners in the storage space. Um, we have partners like Mongo and FreeNAS and FileZilla and Influx, and it's really a great win-win.
0: So, who are the users of storage? What type of applications is it good for?
1: It's really general object storage, which means that anybody who's generating a large file that you know is going to be read a lot is an excellent use case for us. So that's good for backup, it's good for serving videos, it's good for distributing software. And about, you know, the world, of course, is creating lots and lots of data every year, and about 90% of what's being created is sort of large files, which is a perfect use case for us.
0: Some would say that you have to be 10 times better than a previous existing solution to motivate people to move. Why would someone use storage over Amazon S3? That's a good
1: question. And, you know, I'll sort of generalize it to the, you know, centralized cloud storage offerings. One interesting note is that while the price of disk drives has come down, you know, roughly 50% over the past five years, the price of cloud storage has come down maybe 10% during a period in which the amount of, of data, of course, has exploded. So we are significantly cheaper, whilst still profitable. We are also significantly, uh, we think, a much better um, security model. And we can't read your data. It is almost impossible for a, a hacker to get at your data or get at a tro- treasure trove of data. It's like sort of encrypted, encrypted sand on an encrypted beach. We also happen to be faster, and we happen to be hundred percent durable, and at a significantly lower price. So what we've found is there's almost a sort of an insatiable demand for people to try us out. Now we're early, right? So people are dipping their toes in the water, using test data first or you know low value use cases. But we think when they see what we're doing, they'll be they'll be here.
0: So Google tells me that storage as a cryptocurrency issued on the Ethereum platform, the price they told me was 15.14 cents, mm-hmm. and a 24-hour trading volume of 3 million, prices up 3% in the last 24 hours.
1: Oh, it must have been my speech.
0: It has a circulating supply of 144 million coins, a max coin supply of 425 million coins. So my question is, Is how does a cryptocurrency relate to the monetization strategy? of the company.
1: Our basic economic model is that we quote prices for storage and we, we quote them in dollars. And as a consumer of our service you can either, you know, pay for us pay for storage with us in, in dollars or in our cryptocurrency. If you are a provider to us, if you are renting out your disk drive, we pay you a, a dollar rape, we pay you using our cryptocurrency. And you can either hold on to that, you can use it to buy storage of your own, or you can trade it on one of the 11 plus exchanges that are using us. Unlike a lot of other crypto companies, we're primarily a decentralized storage company. And the crypto is is a great accelerant. It lets us have hundreds of thousands of people get paid in 180 countries and build things like smart contracts. But we're not a mining company. We're a company that is first and foremost about delivering a much better approach to storage.
0: Why was the cryptocurrency a better way than just settling in cash?
1: Well, it turns out to be very difficult to settle in cash in small amounts. It's very difficult to do things like smart contracts using cash. And we were in 180 countries, right? So what we found is that having the cryptocurrency made it much better for us to build a large network. Now, we could, we could certainly be entirely fiat-based, and then there'd be additional fees. But you know, this seems to align well with our interests and with our, our, our community's interests.
0: You've said in the past that there's a disconnect between the value created by open-source software and the amount of economic empowerment. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that?
1: If you look at, for example, the cloud market, which is now a $180 billion market, over two-thirds of all of the workloads are open-source-based. And in fact, if you were to include Linux in that, it's about 90% of the workloads. So it is a very clear statement to make that open-source built the cloud. If you look at the total revenue generated by pure play public open source companies like the Red Hats and the Hortonworks and the Clouderas of the world, their total revenue is about 5 billion. So 5 billion out of 180 billion. And if you talk to any open source company that's doing things in, in infrastructure, what you'll find is that the primary way in which they are being monetized now is by cloud companies who, you know, for rational reasons, basically give away the software for free in order to uh, drive consumption of additional compute cycles or additional storage cycles. And unfortunately, cloud computing is the biggest trend and monetization by giving away for free is the biggest way that open source is getting monetized. And there are really only four companies on the planet that are capable of running large public clouds. And so that, that to me is a huge disconnect.
0: So on this podcast, we've had several guests who are worried about what we call cloud strip mining of open source software, and they see it as really an existential threat to the open source ecosystem. And yet Elastic and Redis and MongoDB are doing pretty well. Is this a victimless crime? And is it desirable for the companies that develop the open source companies to capture all or even a majority of the revenues in the ecosystem?
1: So I agree that there are a handful of successful commercial open source companies, and I happen to have been, you know, at, at, a, at a couple of them. But the issue is there's a handful of them, right? And almost all of the ones that you mentioned have essentially gotten to their state by spending hundreds of millions of dollars to go directly to the on-premise businesses. And while I think it is wonderful and it's great that there are the success stories that there are, I don't think we would be happy if we said, hey, there are only five successful farmers in the world, Right out of billions of farmers, and we wouldn't be happy if we said, "Hey, there are only five or ten successful companies in general." There is so much potential, and so much of this trillion-dollar IT industry and 180 billion-dollar cloud industry is being driven by open source. But if it isn't flowing back in, then we're really not going to see the potential that open source could really could really bring to us. In much the same way that I don't think telecommunications was delivering on its full potential until we went from you know the 80s and Ts of the world to to the internet.
0: So selling to these large enterprise customers, as you mentioned, an on-premise software product is really expensive to scale, Mm -hmm. support, and sales. And it it could be tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of dollars to actually build that kind of infrastructure. But does decentralized cloud approach change that for these companies?
1: Yes. So for an open source company that partners with us, if they have an open source project, which whether you know, through paid users or uh, free users, generates lots and lots of storage. My, my guess is that they are generating lots and lots of money for one of the big four cloud providers, but are not seeing any of that. Instead of trying to come up with a new kind of license, we come up with a new kind of cloud, a decentralized cloud like, like storage. It's entirely in our rational benefit to say, hey, if you have an open source company that drives storage to us, we'll give you a healthy chunk of the revenue that we get. And so that's what we do. And so all of a sudden they're able to build up a sustainable revenue source that doesn't require hiring lots of salespeople, that doesn't require trying to solve the multi cloud problem for, you know, the 500 large companies in the, in the world that that can do that. Now we may not be the end be all and end all, right? We may, we may give them that first two years of additional runway so that they can build a sustainable base and then go after the enterprise. And that's fine. But getting from big community to successful enterprise sales. Is a really hard gap to, to close without the cloud.
0: Recently, I was reading an S one, and I did a search for open source, mm-hmm. and the only place I found it was as a, in the risk section that mm-hmm. you know somehow using open source might come back and bite us, and we might have a liability. Do you think that the public is really aligned with this view that open source is a good thing?
1: Oh well, I, I think there's no question to me that open source itself is the dominant way that software is getting written and, and consumed. Right? I mean, you go to any, any enterprise and it's far more likely to find that they are open source first rather than, than proprietary. And I think it is, is also, if you look at all the exciting things that are happening, whether it's you know containers or Docker or Kubernetes or Mongo or in databases or in operating systems, right, it's all happening in, or machine learning, it's all happening in open source. But the monetization of that is broken. And so it's not that open source, and anybody questions that open source is the right way to build great software. It's that the monetization model, which used to actually be fairly clear, has now gotten disrupted by the public cloud.
0: Because one of the best monetization strategies of offering an as-a-service is as a service. now not available. It's not
1: available, right? I mean, and, and if you're a small company, it is almost always a much better idea to say, hey, let me service lots of small and medium-sized customers first with with something that looks like a service. Rather than try and do on-premise, you might eventually get to on-premise, but um, unfortunately, that model, which used to work pretty well for open source is is really difficult now, and it's not only that you've sort of have this gap between large community and getting to on-premise, but increasingly even the on-premise market is now becoming you know dominated by public cloud
0: do you think that using the open source development methodology, materially contributes to the business?
1: So it really depends. I like to say, you know, open source is uh, not a strategy, you know, it's a tool. And, you know, you have to find the right approach to open source that matches with your business strategy. But, you know, if if your strategy, Docker certainly could not have happened had we been proprietary. We could not build a huge ecosystem and get so much usage and integration if we were proprietary. And then the challenge became, okay, so now we've got millions of users and billions of downloads and lots and lots of enterprises are interested. Now, how do we turn that into into monetization? But honestly, that's a much better problem for me to try and solve than, gosh, I've got some proprietary product that I can't get anybody to take a look at and it doesn't work with anybody else's stuff.
0: What do you think are some of the indicators as to when a project should be, where open sourcing, it might be helpful?
1: So I think that um, there are a few different things to look at. I mean, I think, first of all, you want to, in any project, do that sort of 10x thing that you said, right? If you're just coming up with a open source version of Salesforce, and the only difference is it's going to be slightly cheaper, right? It's not going to happen, right? The disruption was being SaaS. The disruption wasn't uh, on the code side. But I, I think that to the extent that what you are building requires a strategy that wants to build a large top of the funnel, lots of, you know, if it's something that's or developer-centric, if you have a strategy that depends on having lots of integration, if you have a, a strategy that depends on being disruptive, then in those cases, I think you want to look at
0: look at open source.
1: If you're just a, an end-user application, probably not.
0: You mentioned that with storage, there's a virtual cycle of investment, growth, monetization, and innovation. Mm-hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because that's very uh, concise.
1: Sure, sure. Um, well, again, you know, um, our basic business model, as you said, right? we were, sort of, you know, we were like a Airbnb for disk drives or whatever, right? And so we're a different kind of cloud. And since two-thirds of cloud workloads are driven by open source, we've sort of elected to try and make the open source community part of our go-to-market, but in a mutually beneficial way. So in the model that we have, if you're an open source company and your product generates lots of data, whether, you know, by your free users, by your paid users, doesn't matter, or, you know, backups, if you build a connector that gives your user the option to send that data to us versus another form of object storage will give you a chunk. Now, what does that set up? It sets up a nice virtuous cycle in which open source innovates. Open source generates revenue for us, like and similar decentralized networks. We, in turn, send uh, revenue back to open source, which allows them to innovate further and build their own business models, and it continues.
0: You mentioned that decentralized cloud Is potentially a new business model for open source. Mm -hmm. And I understand how you're saying if you write an open source piece of software that uses storage for file persistence, that you could generate revenues from that. Can somebody build a company like storage that uses a decentralized approach Mm -hmm. to solve different kinds of problems? Yeah. Yeah, I
1: mean, so there are companies that are, you know, we're sort of decentralized S3, as you said. There are other companies out there like Sanem and others who are trying to do decentralized e c two. Of course, there is uh, you know a lot of interesting decentralized payment companies. There are interesting decentralized CDN companies. And each of these is basically taking a a sort of fairly horizontal use case that the cloud companies deliver, but delivering it in a de- decentralized way. And I think in all cases, we would all be well served by embracing this notion of mutually beneficial relationship with open source.
0: The only company that we've interviewed who's issued a cryptocurrency do you think that there's opportunities to to use cryptocurrencies for other purposes maybe to help either fund or reduce the transactions cost for developing or monetizing
1: absolutely right uh, so you know I've seen some really interesting of course there are lots and lots of interesting crypto companies and then there are lots of not so interesting ones that are just uh, fly by night operations but You know, among the interesting ones, what blockchain and cryptocurrency enables you to do is sort of create these large decentralized networks where trust is sort of built into the network rather than residing in a particular individual. And you can make payment algorithmic, right? So that there are a lot of interesting experiments, for example, to say, hey, let's reward people for contributions to open source based off of uh, using cryptocurrency and doing it in an algorithmic manner. And I think that's a really interesting idea. but ultimately. For anything like that to work, somebody has to be able to derive economic value from the open source to begin with. And my guess is that's not the people who today are generating the value, which is the public cloud companies.
0: And it's, from a legal business perspective, it's fairly technically challenging launching a cryptocurrency.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we were sort of fortunate, I think, that we, um, we did it right, and we also did it uh, in 2017. So we had a network built and launched before we did a token sale. The token sale had utility from day one, and we've tried really hard not not only to be enterprise-grade in terms of our product, but be you know serious enterprise-grade in terms of our governance and management of the token and our treasury policies and insider trading and governance, all those good things.
0: And storage actually holds cash or an amount of crypt- cryptocurrency that, let's, let's say, is unissued? Mm-hmm. Is that how it works?
1: Yeah, so we generated uh, in our... Token sale, you can sort of think of it, you know, 425 million tokens, and then you know, in essence, we broke the broke the mold. So there will be no no more ever created. We sold 75 million in our initial token sale. Since that time, of course, we've used tokens to compensate people who are running nodes. Some people have paid us back in in, in tokens. Right now there's about 125 million storage tokens in circulation, and then the remainder we have the biggest chunk of that. Is in time lock so that it it won't be entering the market in a uh, undisciplined way.
0: I could probably keep asking you questions about cryptocurrencies for the next half an hour. So oh, that's okay.
1: <laughs> Happy to answer that. But uh, I mean, now I'll, I'll be honest. I find cryptocurrency far less interesting than decentralization because ultimately, I think it, you know it that's a tool, and cryptocurrency is a small part of blockchain, and blockchain is a small part of decentralization. Decentralization is, I think, something that's bigger than, in some ways, bigger than the internet because the internet itself is decentralized
0: slightly off-topic question, but is the acquisition of Red Hat by IBM a good thing for the open-source software segment?
1: I think it really depends on how IBM manages it. And some companies do a great job of acquisitions and some don't do good, a good job. I have to say, I you know I actually sold a company to Red Hat, uh, Gluster, which then, and of course, Red Hat now has become part of IBM. And I think to the extent that IBM enables or allows Red Hat to sort of stay true to its open-source roots, but helps it sort of continue to flourish as a shining example of commercially successful open source, I think it's great. I just, you know, personally, I, uh, you know, last year I was able to say, hey, it's fantastic. We now have more than Red Hat as an example of a uh, public open source company. You know, Red Hat and, and Hortonworks and Cloudera and MuleSoft and, uh, you know, now MuleSoft has been acquired and Cloudera and Hortonworks have combined and Red Hat is now part of IBM, right? So it's actually... You know, Elasticsearch entered, but you know, there's there's fewer public uh, open source companies. Right,
0: so net net we have less. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and of course the largest one is now no longer independent.
0: Recently several prominent companies in our industry like Cloudera and Chef moved to an all open source strategy mm-hmm. and moved away from open core. Do you think open core has peaked and will move back towards a more truly open source model?
1: Well it's interesting because I think I think on you know, on the one hand you've seen some people become more permissive with their licensing, and then you've also seen other companies become more restrictive, right, and come up with sort of new licenses to deal with the cloud era, not cloud era, the cloud era. And I don't have a dog in that fight, except I think that the answer to monetizing the cloud isn't a new kind of license. I think it's a new kind of cloud, and that that's where we kind of come from. Because ultimately, yes, you can add value into open source by making it better for large enterprises, whether it's through you know, proprietary modules or whether it's services support or subscriptions or packaging. And I think those are all kind of variations on the theme. What we need to do is find a way that you can make open source monetizable for large numbers of small and mid-sized companies or even larger companies that are running in the cloud.
0: Putting storage solution aside for one second, what do you think are the biggest challenges today facing entrepreneurs who want to build a business around an open source software project?
1: So I I think that the first challenge most have to do is like any great open source project, right? Build, build something compelling and build an excited community around it. Right. And that, that's a hard thing to do. I think that what they then need to figure out is how do they build a sustainable business model that can carry them from the time they have a really big community to the time that they have a sustainable economics and. Along the way, it gets really difficult. Even if your community is successful, how do you how do you manage your community? How do you monetize? How do you make it possible for people to participate in your community um, without sort of undermining it? And how do you you know how do you avoid sort of going down the point where all that you get from the large companies is charity? I don't say charity in a bad way, but I'm saying you know when I was, when I was running large open source communities, what I wanted from the cloud companies wasn't some cloud credits. I didn't want them to, and I didn't want them to say, Hey, I'll put two people on your thousand person project. It's nice. Right. But what we really needed to do was have a mutually beneficial business relationship so that, you know, we could invest and grow.
0: What advice do you have for the entrepreneur who needs to lead this open source effort and the person you've been through the entrepreneurial journey many Mm -hmm. times. And I'm just wondering if you have any advice for the person who's actually going through that, that journey.
1: Well of course it is a journey, you know, and as they say, it's uh, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. <laughs> so certainly there's a lot I think sort of personally you have to do. I mean you have to love what you're doing and I think especially if you're an open source, you have to believe that the journey will be worth it even if you can't build a successful business. Because if what you're doing isn't interesting enough for you, it's really gonna be hard to build something that's interesting enough to the community. But having done that, I think you need to think really clearly about where you wanna be each year over the next five years. And I think you need to think really clearly and have a point of view over what your monetization strategy is going to be and who are your users and what is your use case. And I think far more startups fail because they don't pick a direction than because they choose the wrong direction. You know, I think if you articulate internally a really clear direction and then you're consistent in saying that's your model, whether it's open core or service and support or excess or whatever it is, and then you align everybody in your company, gosh, I hope your, your choice of strategy is right. But even if it's slightly wrong, at least you'll all be running in the same direction and you can change and you can change course. The worst thing that I've seen in startup after startup after startup is they don't pick a direction. And so everybody runs in five different directions and they, they know they're failing, but they don't know whether it's because one of those is wrong or because all of them are wrong or just because they're spread too thin.
0: Ben, thank you so much for taking the time out of the conference today to record the podcast.
1: Great questions. Thank you.
0: Huge thanks to the Open Core Summit for connecting us to Ben and for making space to record at the 2019 Summit. Don't miss the Open Core Summit next year. It's a fantastic event for founders and open-source teams. Transcription and episode audio can be found on opensourceunderdogs.com. Music from Broke for Free and Chris Zabriskie. Audio editing by Inez Satenji. Production assistance and transcription by Natalie Lau. Operational support from William Lau. Have comments? Tweet at us. The Twitter handle is at Foss podcast. That's F-O-S-S podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast or add it to your favorites on your platform. Every subscription counts. Next week, we have Isaac Schlitter from NPM, the last of the in-person interviews from the Summit. Until then, thanks for listening.